I, I think we have to look at it differently. So when you start talking about cooperative ownership, when you start talking about cooperative economics and ways that we can share things, um, it, it makes us less dependent on a government that really is more attuned to um, serving businesses as customers than residents. You're listening to Black Women Lead, a podcast elevating the stories, struggles, and accomplishments of Black women leading change in their communities. Peace, everyone. Welcome to the Black Women Lead podcast. And I am your host, Piper Carter. And today, I am very honored to be speaking with Donna Givens Davison. Welcome, Donna. Uh, thank you. Glad to join you. Yes, thank you for joining us. I, I have your bio here, and I, I'm going to go ahead and read it. It's so phenomenal. I just, you've done so many great things, and um, you just have so many accomplishments, and I'm, I'm actually excited to read this bio. So you have 35, over 35 years of nonprofit leadership experience in areas of youth and family development, community economic development, community partnerships, and community education. And over the years, you have developed and implemented um, demonstration programs and worked in partnership with a number of youth serving organizations with the consistent goal of increasing opportunity, building capacity, and fostering growth. Those are things that are so needed um, in, in this moment. I'm just excited about this work you're doing. And you currently serve as the president and CEO of Eastside Community Network. And you're also a lecturer at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. You formerly served as president of Youth Development Commission, um, the CEO of Visions Education Development Consortium, um, the executive director of Vanguard CDC. I used to volunteer there teaching photography, love that place, miss that place. Vice President of Programs with Big Brothers Big Sisters of Metropolitan Detroit and in leadership positions and several other nonprofit organizations. Um, you serve as Vice Chair for the Powabic Pottery Society. Oh my goodness, um, I love that place. And you're a board member of New Detroit. If people don't know what New Detroit is, they do racial equity work much needed, uh, Michigan College Access Network and Urban Research Centers. And you're a member of Bridge Detroit Magazine Advisory Council. I'm subscribed to that newsletter. And the Charles H. Wright Community Advisory and Action Council. Okay, we really needed that because we love the, our African-American Museum, the Wright Museum. And a steering committee member for the Lower East Side Action Plan, building the engine for community development in Detroit and the Detroit Residents First Fund. You also co-host a weekly podcast, Authentically Detroit with Orlando Bailey. And I have been on that podcast, uh, myself and Kwaku. 
And um, you've uh, earned your master's in um, educational leadership from Wayne State University and a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from U of M, that's University of Michigan, and a Certificate of Completion from Harvard University Summer Leadership Institute. My goodness, what a wonderful bio. Welcome, welcome to Black Women Lead Podcast, Ms. Donna Givens-Davison. Wow, look at you. <laughs> Just over there shining on all your glory. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for the flattery. <laughs> yes, isn't this a, what a bio. I had to take a breath after reading that bio, you know, it's just, look at all you've done, your service, your leadership. I mean, and some great organizations that are doing powerful work, uh, transformational work, legacy work. So I just wanna first tell you, thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So um, let's just get on down into it, why don't we? So, First, um, I would love for you to talk about your organization and share with us uh, what it is, what it does. All right, well, Eastside Community Network, um, it's formerly known as the Warren County Development Coalition, was um, founded about 37 years ago by Maggie DeSantis. Um, and the goal was for people-centered change inside the community. Everything that is required in people-centered change by building coalitions between um, businesses, well, starting with business, residents, then businesses and institutions. Um, this idea that people, good people can come together and um, come up with solutions for the problems that we share. Um, and part of that was leadership development for residents in the community, advocacy for residents in the community to make sure that when they sat at the table, they were being heard. We have youth programs. Um, historically youth programs and historically um, engaged in community studies um, where we just try to figure out what is going on and spend some time really understanding an issue and building a shared understanding of that issue, at which point we um, developed reports. Um, so I actually worked at Warren Connor in the 90s. I was the um, the director for the Partnership for Economic Independence, which helped to connect people who were long-term in long-term poverty at that time, a lot of people were receiving public assistance that's changed, you know, aid to for families with dependent children has shrunken significantly since the nineties. But at that time you had a number of people who had been on there for many years. And the idea was how do we connect them to workforce opportunities? And we learned that um, building community, building a positive community, helping share information about things, people made changes all on their own. It was not the absence of um, will. It was the absence sometimes of hope and resources that stood between people and where they wanted to go and where they needed to go in order to take better care of their families. So that was really powerful work. Um, since I've been back at um, Warren Connor, the name has changed to Eastside Community Network. And our focus now is in four bucket areas. So we develop people, places, and plans for sustainable neighborhood growth in four areas. Um, we'll start with youth development, which is the first program area that um, ECN ever implemented. Um, we have a teen center at our headquarters where we work to provide a chillable space for young people. They use the word chillable. And so we just added it to our vocabulary um, with, you know, 
games, with a television. They actually like, you know, board games. So that's kind of cool. Um, opportunities for creative expression as well as we're teaching them to cook. And cooking is one of the most popular things that we do, which is truly amazing to me because I have never really been that fond of cooking, but apparently it's a thing now. So anyway, um, we have our youth programs. We're at Southeastern High School providing um, support and training in sustainability so that our young people growing up can understand how to uh, manage our, our planet and take better care of the communities in which they live. The principles of doing that and also opportunities, professional opportunities in that area. Um, we hire young people every summer. Um, these past few summers, we've hired about 35 young people to um, learn. So when they work for us, they actually have to learn some technical skills in journalism, in photography, and um, graphic design, and then create something. And at the same time, they also, again, learn about sustainability. So our youth programs are exciting. We have college and career readiness, and after the cap and gown, and when we put our arms around a young person, we don't let them go until we know they're okay. And that's actually kind of interesting because it's not like we're well-funded to do that work. It's just a commitment that the organization has made. Um, we have community economic development, and with our community economic development program, our focus is on redeveloping Mac Avenue from Connor all the way to Moross, as well as leveraging wealth and opportunity on the Gross Point side of um, Connor to facilitate reinvestment on the Detroit side. Um, and in so doing, our goal is to ensure that we are meeting the retail needs of people who live on the east side of Detroit better meeting the retail needs of Black people who live on the east side of Detroit. So we don't all have to go to Livernois in order to get um, our needs met or to get, um, have certain retail opportunities. That's a vision that we have. We also work on small business development through entrepreneurship training with Prosper Us. We provided stabilization grants as well as um, um, emergency grants to organizations that were impacted by COVID-19. We distribute PPE to folks. We also have community um, organizing and planning, our largest department, and that is um, the department that founded the Lower East Side Action Plan, LEAP Coalition, a coalition of 25 nonprofit organizations and technical advisors on the East Side, primarily block club leaders and neighborhood association leaders, as well as other community organizations coming together to develop a shared voice, a shared vision, and share actions to respond to development pressures, opportunities, and um, concerns in our community. And we have centered our work around anti-gentrification, understanding someone said, what, is, what about good gentrification? And we said, there is no such thing. Gentrification is inherently displacing and is, displacement is inherently wrong for people who have invested in our community and certainly deserve to maintain a stake. We also are working in the McDougal Hunt neighborhood to um, provide some leadership support to organizations there that are trying to create their own planning process or actually are in, in the process of implementing their own planning process in a number of areas. And then we do financial literacy training and I'm probably leaving something out. We also provide resources to the community. So we're working on you know, educating people about um, the property tax foreclosures. We're trying to get people who need to to appeal their uh, property assessments um, this year. Right now, there's a small window of time we can do that. Um, we are assisting with energy improvements inside of people's homes and connecting people to PPE, food, water, shelter, whatever basic needs they need to have connections for. 
Um, and then finally, um, climate health equity is our fourth bucket and that's um, a growing bucket. Pretty soon that will be our biggest. And the understanding that um, you know, the climate change is um, disproportionately impacting black and brown people, especially black people in Detroit, um, in the same way that COVID-19 did. All of the things that make you vulnerable to any pandemic or any kind of other disorder, uh, poverty, lack of access to medical care, um, you know, inadequate housing, a lack of um, adequate um, heating and cooling in your home and a lack of air filtration, and then, you know, pollution inside the community. Our inability to manage stormwater effectively and, and our aging water system leads to a lot of flooding on streets and basements that also carries waterborne disease. And so we have projects that are designed to help educate residents on the, you know, um, the problems with climate change to give them tools through learning how to compost, green stormwater infrastructure, and measuring air quality to help them fight back. And also we have an initiative right now where we're creating climate resilience hubs and not just at our center, which is our um, office on Connor, but also working with a lot of leaders in the community, almost all of them women, who have established these hubs in the neighborhood. They purchased a vacant home fix it up and are using that to distribute resources and serve as a gathering place. As a resilience hub, that means that we also need to add some other elements to it. Solar lighting with battery storage. So in the case of a blackout or brownout, like what you're seeing in Texas right now, people have access to power and people have access to, um, you know, refrigeration and a place to plug in their oxygen tanks and other things that are of great concern. Um, and also that we, you know, people have access to potable water, food, and safety. And so we're trying to create a network across the east side where we work on this. And we have partners um, that we're doing this with. Most you know, notably, um, we're working with um, um, Brilliant Detroit, which is opening a brilliant home in one of our neighborhoods. And they're going to put on solar panels and test this idea. And we're working with um, some um, some solar providers um, and you know other partners who are just helping to advise that work. So we have a big um, spread out agenda. It's kind of hard to be concise because we try to do so many things. Um, we try to bring the community together and um, understanding that knowledge is power and that community cohesion can happen at many levels. Um, so first of all, thank you. Thank you for the work. Thank you for the vision. Thank you for pushing through in these tough times. Thank you for taking care of people. Thank you for, for wanting to take care of people. And thank you for continuing to think holistically about how to take care of people. All of that is so crucial. Um, and then everything you've said just excites me. This is all the stuff that I'm involved in, all the stuff that I do. I, I have a bajillion questions. This could be a 12 hour um, podcast. <laughs> just me asking you questions on like every single thing. Um, and I have some other questions that I wanna ask you, but based on what you've shared, I, I have a few questions of my own that I definitely wanna ask you about. How has your organization been able to serve people during COVID um, all the way through now. And I know that, you know, I, I 
have been involved in some relief efforts and things, and we've done been doing door to door. Um, and last year was really a lot of, you know, activity. How is it now, you know, in, since we've gotten past the holiday, um, you know, is, is, is it, are people attending the space, you know, in person, do you have to do some door to door, you know, are you doing digital? Like, what is that? What does your service look like? I'm primarily digital, um, zoom or telephone right now. We do drop off supplies to people as needed or allow them to pick them up. But we are not um, convening people in that way right now. I take um, COVID-19 real seriously. Um, we have so many people with fragile health and um, don't want to add to that. So we um, initiate phone calls and we initiate outreach to people. We use Facebook, which lots of people who don't use any other program on their phone use Facebook. And so it's kind of an equalizer. We've added text messaging to our communication toolkit so that people who don't read emails can get text. Um, we do have a lot of Zoom meetings, but we also have distributed hotspots and laptops to people who don't have access to their homes. Now that's a very limited supply, but we've been able to do that. Um, and then I think, you know, um, we had to come to terms with who is our organization. When I got there, you know, in 2016, I got here and it's like, okay, what do we do? There are so many organizations inside the Lower East Side area that we serve. It's a 15 square mile area. And if I'm sitting down with the city of Detroit or with the foundation, how do I explain my role in comparison to that of other organizations? And what I came up with is that our real focus should be supporting the organizations in our midst and making sure that the leaders of these block clubs and neighborhood organizations have the resources they need to serve the people in their community. I forgot to mention one of the big signature projects that we have right now, and that is sustainability fellowship. And we have eight sustainability fellows right now who are community leaders who are learning more about sustainability. So we work with our sustainability fellows, we work with our um, steering committee members, and then we have a neighborhood improvement committee that's meeting and connecting people with community leaders so that um, rather than us helping every resident, which we can't do, we think that if every block club is stronger, if every neighborhood organization is stronger and has what they need, has the information and tools and resources they need, then our leadership capacity in this community increases so much more and access to resources is just much greater. So this has been a great test. If we get 3000 masks donated to us, how do we distribute them among our partners? If we have vats of water delivered to us, how do we distribute that among our partners? And how do we make, how do we confirm that this water is leaving their facilities and getting into the hands of people in need? Um, but I think that we've done a really good job. I think that, um, it, the idea is that when people leave our organization, they should feel more capable. With small businesses on Mac Avenue, you've got a lot of turnover. I mean, businesses everywhere. It's very hard to um, to maintain a business, a restaurant, when people have to you know shelter in place and can't go to restaurants. So we've had some turnover there. But even as new businesses come to bear, we connect with them. Um, young people, teenagers hate Zoom meetings. You know, they Zoom all day and the last thing they want to do is Zoom with you. So a lot of times what we're doing is more one-on-one -on -one work with teens so that we can still stay connected, but minimize the number of times they have to sit in a Hollywood Square kind of environment and, you know, get made invisible in that space.
Um, so it's been interesting. I think that when all is said and done, we're going to find that the digital divide has narrowed somewhat in our community. Um, and there's a lot of work to do. Um, so I think that part is good. And the other thing is that, you know, when you have face-to-face -face meetings, there's always barriers to participation. It, people who have cars find it easier to participate than people without. People who have permanent or stable housing find it easier to participate. So I think that to some extent, we may have lost participation in some people and gained it in others. Our meetings are usually pretty well attended, all things considered. Although what I've noticed is that when the pandemic first hit, attendance was here and now it's here and it's slowly shrinking. And I think that's because there's a lot of competition. There's so many things that people can do on Zoom. And so either people are Zoomed out or they are um, doing competing things. And when you say wrap around, you guys really wrap around. You wrap around and again and again and again. You guys are wrapping all the way around. I love it. All the way through to thinking about the environment, to thinking about food, to thinking about shelter, to thinking about the, the business aspect, to the education, to how people can, you know, you spoke of um, this trajectory of how people used to, uh, there used to be a larger number of people who are on um, public assistance and how you're able to kind of help people be more self-determined, which is a great thing. And um, can you speak a bit more about the vision of the organization with regard to, um, let's say 2022, like where you guys wanna move, things you can share, where you wanna move to for 2022? I have a very exciting vision, but I do wanna back up and say that I think that the reduction in caseload for people who are poor is a very bad sign. I think that housing crisis, health crisis, and family instability has increased because the government has decided it, to get out of the business of providing a um, safety net. Um, if I could do anything, I would advocate, and I do advocate, and I was fortunate to be on the Poverty Advisory Committee for the state of Michigan's uh, Poverty Task Force. And I was really pleased with the report because the report speaks to increasing cash assistance and removing barriers to cash assistance, among many other things. And we've got to figure out housing. I mean, not just in Detroit, but everywhere. Housing is a human right, every bit as much a human right as water. And if you have a lack of housing, that means that um, your kids are not going to have stable school attendance. Your work attendance is going to suffer. Your health is going to suffer. Um, your mental health is going to suffer and the communities where people are destabilized are also suffering. So even if I'm okay, if my neighbor loses their home and now you have a succession of tenants in their home or it becomes vacant, that impacts my housing value, neighborhood cohesion, neighborhood safety, all of those other values. So um, we've got to figure out a way to have a basic standard of life for people inside of our community understanding that people don't choose to be poor and our society is structured in a way that many people have to be poor. I mean, especially when we're black, which is not new. We've been dealing with economic injustice. That's what racism really is, is economic injustice, right? And so when you, I mean, there's many other things, but it's rooted in this concept that one group of people, the dominant group is going to be able to exploit the resources, capital and um, talents of another group of people in some way, shape or form. And, you know, it started out in slavery 
right? But then after slavery had sharecropping, you have to look at mass incarceration and how that works. And then the financialization of um, institutions serving black people in cities, whether it's our schools or, you know, um, a number of services are being financialized in such a way that we're not really centering work around human needs. So um, I think it's a problem, but I think that the pushback has to be that we have more vacant land than any large city in America. And that vacancy can be leveraged for um, sort of self-help for ownership because land comes cheaper here than it does in many places. And for us to um, create opportunities to own and determine our own fate. So on the one hand, it's horrible people are being kicked off of welfare. And on the other hand, we can come up with new economic models for maintenance that don't make us so vulnerable to shifts in um, political fortunes. Um, so what, one of the things we're looking at moving into next year is um, restructuring our um, restructuring our headquarters as a wellness and resilience hub. One of our tenants, because of COVID-19, lost a lot of income and had to really downsize. So we have a lot of space. And the question is, do we go out and try to attract a new tenant or do we use the space we have to begin working more intentionally on the nine dimensions of wellness? Um, again, looking at COVID-19, Black people showed up more vulnerable, more likely to become exposed to COVID-19. And that vulnerability a lot of times has to do with our lack of access to wellness resources, whether it is fitness resources, just basic screening resources and relationship with doctors and healthcare. Um, we don't necessarily have outlets for creative expression, for um, the internet where we can learn things, schedule a doctor's appointments, even to get the vaccine, you have to have a certain level of literacy and technology to understand where to call and how to get there. Um, so creating opportunities to do that is important. We wanna create places where people can come together in a healthy way and in a positive way, build on um, the relationships that form inside of communities people don't have to just show up at our office for a meeting. We could have a room that's a community where people can direct their own activities. Um, you have a podcast. This is a podcast. We have a podcast. I think podcasting is really cool. Um, people have been complaining about 910, but we can control our messaging if we control our voices, right? And so how do we cultivate community voice such that average everyday residents can just speak on their values and what they see and believe? Um, and you know uh, we're we're looking at um, space to grow and sell food, and to have community events. I mean, the all of the wellness activities that we're thinking of. When you look in District Four, which is where we're located, there is no uh, recreation center in District Four. We are the only district that doesn't have one. We don't have you know gyms, community gyms or places for people to lift weights and learn how to, you know, do aerobics and things like that. And that does impact health. So anyway, the retrofit of our building into a wellness and resiliency hub where we'll be able to help people in climate emergencies and also convene people to take care of their needs and work collectively towards things and centralized distribution of information and resources is our big project. And we're hoping to kick it off in fall of this year 
if all goes right with vaccines and the trajectory of the um, you know, transmission, hopefully we're going to see a real reduction in risk. And when we get to that level, we want to open back up to the community um, and embrace the community like we never have. Oh my goodness. I have so many questions. Um, it's just so fruitful, you know, the work that you're doing and I'm excited about what you're going to be doing in 2022. You're going to see me. I have a block club, so you're definitely going to uh, hear from me and see me. I'm, I'm, I'm already going to be knocking on your door. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, um, I want to go back a, a bit further and just ask you, you know, how did you just become interested and involved in this work? It's like, you know, it, it doesn't seem like the type of work that uh, we're told about as, as, as children, that this is a job, you could do this. Like, how, do, how does this become your career? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> That's a good question. And why don't our educational institutions prepare people for a broader range of careers in the helping professions? Um, I fell into it. I slipped into it. I ended up um, leaving college early because my um, parents got divorced. My dad would no longer pay my tuition and I had debt. I had, I owed money. You know, my parents were able to pay my tuition until they stopped. So I didn't have financial aid, but then I had a financial crisis and um, I found myself on my own working minimum wage jobs. We're talking about in the 1980s when minimum wage was three thirty-five an hour. <laughs> and, um, you know, and really having no sense of a future. Um, and I had given up on life. And I think it's important that people understand that sometimes we give up. I believed that um, I had failed to live up to my potential. I was a college dropout. And um, a friend of mine who actually is now the attorney general in Minnesota, Keith Ellison, um, had come to town. We grew up like brother and sister. And he came to town. He said, what are you doing? And I was like living life. You know, I was just hanging out, going to the club. And, you know, my boyfriend played drums in a band and I was just, you know, living day to day. I had no future plans. And he said, you can't live like this, Donna. You are too smart for this. And so he started trying to get me a job and um, he was unsuccessful. But my mother was working at the health department in AIDS prevention. And there was a nonprofit associated with that community health awareness group that she was telling me about. And I decided I'd volunteer so I could find some meaning in my life. So I worked my part-time job at Chapers Alley and I volunteered for community health awareness group and um, anything, you know, sweeping floors, typing, anything to get me connected to some sense of purpose. And within, you know, six months, I was a um, HIV AIDS prevention counselor. And then the person who was overseeing the um, community health awareness group, um, Linda Campbell, who is now the, you know, over um, Detroit People's Platform, where Linda was over the AIDS project for the Detroit Health Department. And she saw my potential and said, if you go back to college and finish up, then I will give you a real job. And so, um, you know, I said, I can't go to college and finish up because I owe money. And she says, write them. So I wrote them a letter explaining my circumstances and indeed they let me back in um, and I was able to complete my bachelor's degree. And then I became a, um, a you know, vice uh, assistant director for the organization. Um, and so, you know, those experiences when I was really down and out were really hard, but they were also great learning experiences. I grew up in a somewhat privileged setting that was kind of sheltered. 
And I had to learn about the world and about suffering, about what was going on with people and um, learn about myself and my own capacity for change. And what I found was that I took all of the lessons, everything I had learned when I was struggling, when I was feeling down and out, and I was able to translate that into programs and support for people who were still in that position. Um, I, I think without having loss, it would not have been helpful. And, and along the way, you know, throughout my career, I've had many losses. I think that, you know, we all, we only talk about our success. If you were at my real resume, you'd be like, dang, <laughs> that messed up, you know, because that's, that's the way life leads. You don't have a 30 plus year career and all you have is gold stars, or at least I don't, right? Other people may have only gone upward, but the idea is that you have to learn how to manage loss mistakes, change, and get back up on your feet. And so I feel like, you know, there's been career changes where things didn't work out the way I expected them to. And, uh, you know, having to start over again um, at ages where I didn't think I had to, I lived through two divorces um, before I got married a third time. This is wonderful. There will be no divorce this time, but I lived through two divorces and being a single parent and then a married single parent, some women will know what I mean, right? When you have a ring, but you don't have a, a partner. <laughs> um, so I, I lived through that. And um, so I think tapping into your own reserves and figuring out what got you out of things can help you figure out what other people need. Not that everybody is just like you, but, you know, the ability to empathize, close your eyes and imagine what it would be like to be in these shoes helps you navigate the process of helping other people do the same. And then um, really good listening skills where you don't just look at your own situation. For every bad thing that's happened to me, something worse happened to somebody else. Somebody dealt with more struggles. And so really trying to make sure that you root your understanding of what other people are doing. When I was working at CHEC and we were dealing with people with HIV AIDS, I actually ran the support group. And I didn't have any credentials. I don't know why they let me do this, but I was actually really good at it. I was good at listening to people and keeping conversation going. And hearing those stories kind of gave me an understanding of how the world looked to other people. How does the world look to a returning citizen, a recovering drug addict, a person who was gay and living in the shadows because of fear of rejection, um, a woman who found out that her partner was bisexual when she found out that she had HIV AIDS. And at that time it was a death sentence. A student who went to college and while in college found out that as a straight A magna cum laude student, he had HIV AIDS and would probably not live to get his degree. Um, those experiences um, certainly were hard, but they really helped shape my understanding and um, using the same process to listen and care about people and try to understand them, I think has been really um, important. And the final thing I'll say is it's important to maintain your understanding of what's happening in the world. Um, I think it would be an understatement to say that I read a lot, not just read Facebook and even the New York Times. I like to read a lot of research papers and read books that help explain the world, you know, the color of law and race for, um, profit and evicted and, um, you know, the new Jim Crow between the world and me. I've got every time if you when people know me, anytime we're talking about a subject, I'm recommending books like a walking bibliography, because I feel as though 
um, that's how we also grow is investing in our new knowledge. So when I got my job at Eastside Community Network, we were working on this thing called sustainability. And I really had no idea what sustainability was other than the ability to keep your funding together. Um, but this was not my job. So I bought books on it and I started reading about it. It was like, wow, this is fascinating. And um, and then because of continuous, continuous learning, because of the position we were in in the community connected to people, we had a different perspective than a lot of researchers who were learning about these things, but not necessarily connected to the people who were most impacted. And I have a really important question. Did you eat all that chocolate at uh, Trapper's Alley? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I ate much chocolate at Trapper's Alley now that I think about it. I worked at a store called Land and Sea Gifts and, you know, I, I was in and out. Um, I think what I remember most about Trapper's Alley was the Indian food and Sbarro's. Um, I was either eating Indian or Italian, but I don't think a lot of chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I remember they had that chocolate factory or what, what was it, you know, where they made all the chocolate and every it, lines around the corner would be there. But Trapper's Alley now is, what is it's offices and uh, retail space. And it's, it, it's casino space. It's casino space. That's what it is. And you remember they had the waterfall and now that's dried up. <laughs> I went past there and they have it like behind glass or whatever. And it's just, it's mm -hmm. almost like you expect like some dragon or something to like come out like at the zoo, but it's just where the waterfall was. It's so interesting. Um, when you talk about racialized capitalism, I think about um, I want to say like the ruins of Detroit, but there's still symbols of, uh, I'd say the heights of the success of America, right? We have the Renaissance Center or the Trapper's Alley that was built or, and, and, you know, just fill in the blank with some, you know, development project. And, you know, when I think about development in Detroit, um, that word gets used more for gentrification, and how to implement gentrification. But if you really think about it, what you're doing is development. It's community development. It's community development. You're developing the people, developing the neighborhood and supporting the other existing infrastructure to develop itself. Yeah. Pouring yeah. into community so it can develop itself. This That's is really cool. powerful. That's the goal. I mean, I think if you look at traditional forms of development, um, who are the stakeholders that you're serving? Businesses that may want to move into the rent center. Business um, people who may want to use the people mover. A business, GM, Pole Town plant, that may want to increase its you know, foothold in the community and modernize or create something new. And there's always these incentives that we give these businesses with the idea that if we make businesses happy, somehow the benefits will trickle down into the rest of the community and they never do. And I'm not going to put that on one mayor. I'm going to say that the urban development framework is inherently racist and creates an inherent level of injustice inside the community. And people say, well, you know, we don't have enough money for this and we don't have enough money for that. Austerity is the kind of thing that we deliver to people. 
businesses, there's never enough tax breaks. We can just keep giving tax breaks, keep giving tax breaks. And the powers that be will justify it by saying, well, that's future income. So we're not really losing anything that we have. We're losing future income. So I, you know, but if I went to the mayor and I said, I'm going to stop paying my taxes so I could stay in this city, my future income, small as it is, that my future income contribution to the city would never be something that the city would be willing to take off the table. You know what? I've decided to stop paying property taxes and income taxes because being a Detroiter, it's just too expensive. You know, you don't get to do that because you don't have the same power and there's not the same belief that you're going to produce jobs. And I'm not going to say GM doesn't hire people or even Fiat Chrysler, which just expanded, does not hire people. What I am going to say is that the hiring that they do is not necessarily Detroit specific. So we're subsidizing jobs that are taken by people who live all over the United States. Some of them move to the metro area to take those jobs, but how many of them are going to move to the actual area where we have displaced people or displaced activities and we are now poisoning the community with, you know, toxic uh, waste? I, I, I think we have to look at it differently. So when you start talking about cooperative ownership, when you start talking about cooperative economics and ways that we can share things, um, it, it makes us less dependent on a government that really is more attuned to um, serving businesses as customers than residents. One yeah, more- I love that. Can you just repeat that? <laughs> just the last part about the businesses. A government that's committed to serving businesses as customers and not residents. Um, and I'm, you know, in my class that I'm teaching, it's my first semester teaching it. Um, but when you look at citizenship, right, all citizens aren't equal. And we know that we've never been equal. All people have not been citizens and all citizens have not been equal in our nation. And so one of my questions I've always tried to figure out is whether black people are full citizens or whether we are part subject and part citizen, you know, in a colonial power, you have subjects to the ruling class. Do we have, does a government by the people, for the people, and of the people mean Black people? Does it mean Hispanic people? Does it mean Native Americans? Or is that really white people? And sometimes those rights get extended to us. And, you know, you look at the jury pools and you look at gerrymandering and you look at even emergency management and other efforts that have divested us of our citizenship rights. And you can see that that we are not fully the, the cause or the, the, it, the government is not committed to solving our problems in the way that it could be. I do want to say one thing about my, my professional growth, and it's really, really important that I say this, and I forgot to say it earlier, but I don't want to forget to say it at all. Um, teamwork, the idea that we are smarter than me and we can learn from each other has to be part of your learning process. And so over the years, I've been blessed to work with some brilliant people who have informed me and knowledge has to be two-way, right? If you're educating the community, the community has to educate you and everybody can be your partner. And so this concept of um, teamwork where you're not placing yourself on a pedestal and you're placing other people beneath you, but you are saying, this is our shared interest and how do we work together on this is really important whether you're inside of an organization and you're acknowledging the worth and value of everybody there, not just the directors and the you know, um, the experts, but also the person at the front desk and the person who sweeps your floor brings something to your knowledge base that you're responsible for trying to understand. And so um, when we get beyond, when we get to an anti-racist place, 
we're going to find that, you know, we'll find more janitors and receptionists who are black than any other person sometimes in the organization. And these are people who are less heard than anybody in an organization. And that's also how racism perpetuates itself because we are not availing ourselves of the knowledge and feedback from some of the very people that we claim to be wanting to help. So um, I've been very blessed to be connected to that. And I will say that when I was at the Community Health Awareness Group, Linda Campbell modeled that in the uh, work that we did because everybody was part of a family, a team of people, and there were no hierarchical distinctions between folks. I could literally listen to you for hours and hours and hours, but um, we're going to get ready to wrap up. And I, I definitely want everyone to know how folks can support your work, how they can support you to do your work. And I, of all the projects, maybe one project that could use a bit more um, boosting of support. Our wellness hub. If you're serving the community and you want to do it in partnership with us, and you are somehow connected to one of the nine dimensions of wellness, let's work together on that. Um, there is no way one organization is going to be able to adequately serve all nine dimensions. So um, if you have a program idea, if you just want to come out and teach a class, if you want to distribute something to the community, we um, understand the partnership is the most significant thing. Um, if you are on the east side, we want you to join us in our efforts in meetings and just, you know, participate. If you are on the lower east side that we um, are in, you know, support our organization. If you aren't, find the community development organization in the neighborhood where you're located and provide them that support. Um, because, you know, there's a network of CDOs across the city of Detroit. There's a number of initiatives designed to ensure that all communities have access to the kinds of resources that we're trying to make available. Um, we are always happy to share information, share knowledge, have meetings with people um, to help move that along, but it's not about us. And I want to make that clear, unless you're a funder, and then it is about us. We want your money. But um, for most people, it's about the partnership. And even with funders, it's about the partnership because funders have goals and we have goals and how do they align. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can go to ecn-detroit.org and learn more about our organization and learn more about how you can be involved in any level of um, participation. If you want to work with young people, we have our teen work. If you want to work financial literacy, if you're, um, if climate is your thing, um, come learn about our work in um, climate equity. And then for you, how can people support you in your role and what you're doing? Ooh. <laughs> um, so the big thing for me is I have so many thoughts. And at some point, I'm going to want to um, take time to actually write about what I want. And so um, if there's anybody listening who knows how or wants to help me figure out how to take time off of work, what do you call a, a sabbatical, a writing sabbatical, to engage in a writing sabbatical, to document some of the things that I know, think about and learn about, um, I would appreciate that. Because I think, um, you know, that when you are where you are in my career, sharing what you know is really important. I, you know, writing it down and making sure that people have as much access to that is they do to some of the materials who are written by people who do not have the experience at the ground level is important. And so um, from a writing sabbatical would be helpful. I feel tremendously supported and honored by people. And that has not always been the case. 
you know, there was a time when people were afraid to complain, speak out and say anything other than the company line about any aspect of anything going on in the community. And in that silence, that's where you had emergency management and that's where you had bankruptcy and you had so many things. And our community was not well equipped to fight back. Um, I happen to believe if emergency management happened right now, people would just, you know, we have systems of communication and ways that we can come together and organize that we didn't in the past. But each of us has to make sure that we are reaching down to the next generation and giving them the support that we needed. And so I would say play it forward to another generation. I'm okay. I want the sabbatical. But play it forward to the other generation of Black women leaders in the city of Detroit who may not think just like us, nor should they have to, right? Because they're another generation. Um, They may not look just like us and they may not have the same ideas about how to make change, but we've got to understand that we're standing on the shoulders of women who um, broke ground before us. And we've got to do that for women in our future. You know, I think that that's really important. And I really appreciate Black Women Lead, even though I have not been as active as I could just because I'm a little bit overwhelmed by everything you read in my biography. And that's not even all of it, right? But I, I do a lot. Um, and I want to be more active because I really want to support other Black women as leaders. And I think we all should, especially, like I said, young Black women. We have my brother's keep, but the sisters need something too, because we're dealing with racism and sexism and every other kind of isn't. And sometimes those things combined can be deathly. So um, that's how I see it. And thank you. And then um, can you just repeat your website and the social media and how to connect? Yes, um, ecndetroit.org. And I believe you can either do it with a hyphen between ECN and Detroit or without it. And we have, um, you can like us on Facebook at Eastside Community Network. And we have a lot of information we share there. And we use um, Twitter and Instagram much less frequently. So I would suggest that you use that. If you're interested in hearing more of the conversations that we're having about our work, I would encourage you to listen to our podcast, Authentically Detroit, which is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, And if you're interested in being a guest, let us know um, by, you know, um, sending an email to me at dgivens at ecndetroit-detroit.org or Orlando Bailey at obailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y, at bridgedetroit.com. And one of the one of us will get back in touch with you. Thank you so much for spending this time, giving us so much time and so much valuable information and just understanding more about the important work that you're doing. So just much gratitude to you again. Thank you, thank you. I know I'm definitely going to be following up uh, for sure. I'm very excited to learn about all of the work that you're doing on the East side. Um, That's where my family is from. And just, this is wonderful. Um, So for everyone, again, we have been hearing from the phenomenal Donna Givens Davison and about all of this great work that's going on in the East side of Detroit. And we just want to remind you to support black women listen to black women and follow black women because black women lead thank you
Learn more about outstanding Black women leaders and how you can support their work at blackwomenleadus.com.